Hi there, welcome back. A big day. Made a statement to the Internal Affairs of Pima County Sheriff's, Sheriff's Department. Sheriff's. So, now, I want to see what's going on in the world. See what's going on in the world. live discussion on TikTok about religion. No. Okay. All right. Uh, so yeah, thanks for 277K. See what Midas Touch is doing these days. If you didn't know, I cover Midas Touch. Cover pretty much everything they publish. And Midas Touch Producer. What the hell? What the hell? See, mega goons threaten wives of anti Jordan Republicans? What does that mean? Oh. Trump's own accountant stick the knife in his back in devastating testimony. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Rides. Do not pay for another grocery bill again if you're over the age of 64 and on Medicare. When I'm 64. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF. To paraphrase the great movie, The Godfather, it was Donald Trump all along. That according to a low-level vice president that works currently for the Trump Organization, Patrick Bernie, who Donald Trump testified in a deposition about six months ago. He didn't even know quite who that guy was. Well, that guy, who's an assistant vice president and reports to Donald Trump's former chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, was one of the insider witnesses, the only one currently employed so far for Donald Trump, although not for very long, I'm sure who completely supported the New York Attorney General's fraud case with his testimony. It was bombshell, weather-in-the-room-changing testimony mm. by Patrick Bernie. Patrick Bernie um, confessed that in a conversation with Alan Weisselberg in 2017 or 2018, in Alan Weisselberg's office, Alan Weisselberg told him, his underling, um, that Donald Trump, the boss, wanted his financial statement increased, inflated. Um, in fact, it was a direct question and answer led skillfully by the Attorney General, the Assistant Attorney General, um, Eric Heron. Eric Heron asked him point blank question, did anyone ever tell you that Donald Trump wanted his net worth on his statement of financial condition to go up each year, to which young Master Bernie responded, yes, Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, in Alan Weisselberg's office. And that was the last question after almost a full day of Mr. Bernie on the stand. That's how the Office of Attorney General, you know, you know no ended it. You know, that shows a lot of confidence in your case. 
when you do a mic drop at the end of a cross-examination. I've been doing this for 32 years. I do cross-examination. And that was one of the cardinal rules of cross-examination on display by the Office of Attorney General. End on a high note. End your cross-examination on a high note. Whether you have a jury or a judge, in this case, deciding the issues, don't end on something that's weak. End on something that's strong. And that was about as close to a mic drop as you're going to find from a cross-examination with that Q&A. Not only that, but it was a fulfillment of a promise that was made in the opening statement by Mr. Harron's colleague um, when he said in the opening statement two weeks ago that Mr. Bernie was going to take the stand and say that Donald Trump told Alan Weisselberg to inflate his assets, which is a fraud. And more, more importantly, is a persistent fraud, as that term is used under New York statutes, giving the New York Attorney General broad powers to shut down fraudulent businesses and their practices and take back from them assets that were unlawfully and illegally obtained. Um, it, you know it was uh, a, a moment that hurt the Trump Organization. All they could do was jump up Mr. Keis, Chris Keis, who's handling as the lead attorney for this case, not Alina Haba, but really Chris Keis. Chris Keis stood up and said, objection, hearsay. And the judge, and they had an argument about it, and the judge, because there's no jury present, and the judge was nice to the Trumpers and said, you can submit a brief on that point. I'll hold my ruling in abeyance. I'm going to make it simple for everybody. I'll make the ruling right here <laughs> for Judge Ingoron. It's not hearsay. It is not considered hearsay when a person reports something that's a statement against interest of another person. It's either non-hearsay because it's not being considered for the truth of the matter asserted, although it is, I think, here, or it's not hearsay because it's being it's being offered for the impact it had on the person to whom that was said, or it's a statement against interest that's been now been repeated. So it, it, it's a hearsay exception. Under any of those categories, that statement is coming into the record. In any event, the, the bell's already been rung. The judge has heard it. He's not going to instruct himself to forget it. He heard it. So I think at the end of the day, this is interesting. But Bernie's comment to end that Q&A is going to come into evidence that he was directed by Alan Weisselberg on behalf of Donald Trump, that it was Trump all along who wanted to see his assets artificially and fraudulently inflated. Now, I thought the other interesting thing I wanted to bring out on this hot take is the lack of cross-examination by Trump. The Trump side said no questions after Mr. Bernie just severely damaged their case. I want to walk through that for a minute. Now, first of all, Bernie was not treated like a hostile witness. Um, he was treated like a normal witness. If he was a hostile witness, they would have went into cross-examination mode, asking leading questions that, that lead to a yes or no answer, like you see on television. Isn't it a fact that Mr. Weisselberg told you to change the inflate, the assets on behalf of Donald Trump? Yes or no, sir? That's cross-examination. They didn't do that with Mr. Bernie. They asked him open-ended questions, what we call direct questions. 
that um, where the witness testifies. That's because they had already prepped him, and they knew he wasn't going to be hostile, and he was going to tell the truth. I mean, he looks like a Boy Scout. He's been with the Trump Organization for eight years. You know, assistant vice president in New York is like the lowest level vice president in any organization. So this is not a high-level guy. He started as a financial analyst. He's so low-level that Donald Trump said he didn't even know who he was. The reason the attorney general in her deposition several months ago against Donald Trump the second time started running names by him is because they knew they were going to use them in their trial, and they wanted to see what his reaction was to them in advance. Do you know Patrick Bernie? I really don't. Do you, do you know the assistant controller that works for Alan Weisselberg? I don't. She's testifying, by the way, today um, in court. The assistant, the other one, he doesn't know. If someone would have told me that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. Then I tried qualia senolytic. As we age, everyone accumulates senolytic, gluten-free, and since taking qualia resist aging at the center for an additional 15% off. That's nerve. Uh, I found it curious. And I'm trying to think of the tactics and strategy here. I'm trying to be kind as a trial lawyer myself about why you wouldn't cross-examine somebody that just damaged you, either because they don't think they can at all in front of the judge, or they're worried that somehow it, it'll backfire on them, creating more bad evidence against them. And I guess they think they have another shot at putting him on when the attorney general's case in chief her presentation of the evidence and her witnesses is complete. She goes first. She has the burden of proof. They're going to try to argue that maybe the burden hasn't been met, that she has improved intent to defraud, which is the element that she has to make out here in this trial, which is different than the persistent fraud claim that she already won on on summary judgment. That particular standalone fraud count under New York law doesn't require intent, and so that's why she was able to do that on summary judgment. So, I, but they can't be that cocky on the Trump side to think they've got intent in the bag that, that they'll be able to argue that it hasn't been proven and they're not going to cross-examine a witness who just hurt them. And they didn't cross-examine the next witness who also works currently for, for uh, the Trump entities. They didn't do anything about him either. And he took the stand and, and didn't do cross. There we had um, Mark Hawthorne, who's the Trump Hotel chief accountant, Chief, they call him the chief accounting officer, which is sort of strange. It's usually one rung below the chief financial officer, which means he reported to Alan Weisselberg, the disgraced criminal tax chief felon um, that has also testified against Donald Trump in this case and in other cases. But Mark Hawthorne testified about a $290 million fake number on Donald Trump's balance sheet related to the Trump hotels. That's a big number. You only need to show fraud in $1. So far, if you add it up, I think the Attorney General is up to at least half a billion dollars, half a billion dollars of fake numbers on Donald Trump's uh, personal financial statement, which he then uses to borrow more money that he's entitled to to insure his properties at values that they're not, um, that they're not worth and to get insurance to back all of that up as well. And Mr. Hawthorne said, as the $290 million that he had assumed based on bad information, meaning lies, told to him by the Trump Organization, his bosses, and Alan Weisselberg, that a $290 million cash number on the balance sheet in the books 
related to Vornado, a developer that Donald Trump was in a limited partnership with, that all of that cash was accessible to Donald Trump and therefore was an asset of the Trump organization reflected on their books. But then he learned through the New York Attorney General investigation that that $290 million was not accessible by Donald Trump. It was part of a partnership locked away in a partnership to which he didn't have unfettered access, and therefore he had to admit on the stand that listing $290 million on him as a plus on the balance sheet as an asset was wrong, and it was based on wrong information, purposefully, the, the argument will go, supplied to him by the Trump Organization. In other words, just knock 290, $290 million. You know, what's $290 million between friends? Take it off the balance sheet. And when they asked him as sort of their final concluding question, knowing what you know now, would you list the $290 million on Trump's balance sheet as an asset? He said, probably not. <laughs> I, love the, I love the concessions. He's still employed there, by the way, at least currently. So what you have is another example of Trump either instructing employees to just change numbers, cook the books, or giving false information to other employees to lead them to a false conclusion and put a number on a balance sheet that is knowingly false, knowingly by Trump false. And he's done that before. He's misled his lawyers and puts them in harm's way when they're negotiating with the federal government or the Department of Justice, like in Mar-a-Lago and Evan Corcoran, and he did it with his own employees. Why are we shocked that he misled his employees, he's been misleading his outside lawyers for a long, long time about what really happened. And so, again, without explanation, no cross-examination of Mr. Hawthorne by Mr. Keis. He just stood up and said, no further questions. No questions. Another oddity. Um, they might think that this will stop them from being able to ask for a directed judgment in their favor, but they're not going to get a directed judgment in their favor from this judge at the close of evidence. See, at the close of the party that has the burden of proof, like the Attorney General here, in her case in chief, when she's done, we know it because the judge says, are there any other witnesses? No, Your Honor. Is there any other evidence that needs to be um, put into evidence? No, Your Honor. Has the Attorney General rested? Well, yes, Your Honor. That is an important point in a jury, in, in a trial, any trial, a bright line procedurally, because that then concludes the record as it relates to the burden that that party has to prove their case. They can't put in any other evidence. They can do some things in cross-examination, but that completes the record on the case in chief for appeal and otherwise, and for the decision. And so at the end, what normally happens is they take a break. Maybe they go to lunch, depending upon the time of day. They come back, and the defense invariably makes a motion that they haven't proved their case, that we've heard all their evidence, we've heard all their witnesses, we've heard everything, everything's in the record, Your Honor, and under New York law, they don't make the elements of showing intent to defraud under these statutes that she's suing under, the conspiracy the um, uh, fraud about financial statements, the fraud about business records, the fraud about insurance and the conspiracies around all that. They haven't proven it, Judge. And they'll argue about it. So maybe they're concerned that they'll accidentally um, get evidence into the record on behalf of the Attorney General that'll help her case, and so that'll defeat their ability to ask for a directed judgment in their favor without them having to put on their case in defense. But they're not going to get that in this case. So 
they're left with calling back Mr. Hawthorne, the, the, the Trump Hotel's accountant, and calling back um, uh, Mr. Bernie, if he's still there, and, uh, and other people that work for the company, and doing it in a friendly way, in their case, should they need it. I guess that's what they're going to do. I got to tell you that I generally cross-examine, <laughs> especially because, it, especially if you have a jury. If you have a jury, you want to do it right there because the jury's already forming their opinions. I guess they're banking on the judge not forming opinions, but this judge has been on the case for a year. He's been violently attacked by Donald Trump. He's been sued by Donald Trump to try to get him off the case. He's, he's had a motion for disqualification against him. He's had social media attacks against him and his staff. He's had a issue a, a, a contempt finding against Donald Trump and a $10,000 a day fine. He's had to gag Donald Trump. I think this judge is paying attention. I don't think you're going to get your directed verdict or um, you should wait to cross-examine, but that's my sort of sense as a trial lawyer and giving some free advice. I do it on hot takes like this one only on the Midas Touch Network on this YouTube channel. If you like this hot take, give me a thumbs up. It helps with the ratings, and then you'll get to see my next hot take. My entire body of work is under the YouTube channel for Midas Touch under playlists. Look for Michael Popak. On Wednesdays and Saturdays, you know where to find me, the Midas Touch Network on there exclusively on Legal AF, the leading podcast devoted to law and politics and justice only on the Midas Touch Network. I co-anchor it on Wednesdays and Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and then on audio platforms. See what else? See what else we got? Jordan gets rejected. Moskowitz responds. How can I build humiliated and fail speaker vote? Moskowitz, I love Moskowitz. Moskowitz is awesome. Your balance is always paid on time. God bless Moskowitz. Apply today at Charm.com. Now what you see behind me looks like a what the hell? But in fact, it's this panel right here. This is a the tellers agree in their tallies that the total number of votes cast is 432, of which the Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 200 votes. Uh-huh. The Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 212 votes. <laughs> as, I, as I've said, which is for the 16 years, 16 years, Jim Jordan has been in Congress. Okay, I would like to go over right now all of his legislative accomplishments. I want to list them one by one. I'm going to start right now. I'm finished. Congressmember Moskowitz, welcome. And what what did we just observe? What went down? Where does it go from here? Well, uh, more more of the same, more of the same. Uh, which is, we still don't have a speaker, uh, and uh, my colleagues across the aisle are in complete disarray. Uh, you know, when I was advocating that we should have uh, Jordan uh, in in the House of Representatives, I was talking about the sneaker, not not potentially a Speaker Jordan. And it looks like the Republicans agree with me. It looks like a Speaker Jordan right now is not uh, is not on the list. But it is fascinating. It is fascinating to watch them not be able to complete this process. The American people gave them the House. They said, "We want you in charge." In the last election, and boy, they have spent nine months convincing the American people that they do much better in the minority. You were on the floor as the vote was taking place, as we were watching it live on the Midas Touch Network. We heard some audible gasps and moments Uh where it seems that the 
Republicans were even surprised uh. of certain people who were not voting for Jim Jordan. Who yeah, I that's guess all they, digital. We just push a button and it makes the noise. And ah, ooh, you know, uh. it's all synthesizers. So were they? Did, was there zero planning? <laughs> did they not know it was going to go down? Like, like, how do you go in with such disarray and make an utter mockery, not just of their own party, but the reality is. It, it, it's a stain on our democracy in general. Have you not been watching the last nine months? I know you have. I know you've been watching. I mean, when we say how, how could they do it? They've been doing it for nine months. I mean, you know, these guys couldn't elect a speaker in their first couple of days in power. Then they removed the guy. They can't run an impeachment hearing because they're impeaching a president for nothing or trying to, perhaps. You know, I mean, everything they've done, they tried to close the government. Democrats had to keep it open. They tried to default on the deficit, something that has never happened in the history of this country. Democrats had to stop them from doing that. And now it'll probably be Democrats once again uh, trying to get the U.S. House of Representatives open so that we can help our ally Israel, we can help out folks in Ukraine, and we can keep the government from shutting down again, which is now only 30 days away. So, look, this is exactly what we've been seeing, uh, which is they are just a total and utter disaster. It's good that the government is open because at this point, I think they need FEMA help. I think they're going to need FEMA come in and just clean this up for them so what happens next are you are, are you what are they doing what are democrats doing sure. what should we they're gonna go to meet they're gonna go meet there's a room like literally right across from my office big conference room in the ways and means uh committee room they're gonna go meet in there they're probably gonna you know squeeze some people get that number down from 20 to something and then probably bring us back out for a second round to figure out where they figure out where they sit the real question will be is how many people said they'll vote for Jim Jordan on the first ballot, but won't vote for him on the second ballot. So every vote they pick up, they could be bleeding another vote somewhere else. So uh, my guess is we'll see another round of voting in the afternoon to figure out where they are. And they're going to they're gonna have right-wing media go after these people. They're going to have right-wing Twitter and Truth Social uh, you know, go after these people. They're going to try to squeeze them by saying they'll get primaried. And then we got to figure out where the where the where the numbers uh, where the numbers truly lie, and that will tell us whether this is going to go on for a couple of days, and they're going to try to make it happen, or if Jordan's going to step aside. Just how dangerous would Jim Jordan be as Speaker of the House? You're a solution-oriented member of Congress who's willing to roll up his sleeves to try to make deals for the, for the benefit of the American people. How? Uh, Problematic is Jim Jordan in trying to achieve solutions to America's problems. Well, the only solution I've ever seen Jim Jordan solve was trying to keep Donald Trump as president after he lost the election. Right? That was the only thing I think Jim Jordan has really tried to accomplish, which was to steal an election in this country by being the point man for Donald Trump in the House. After Trump lost, he lost the election, right? It was well known then, it's well known now. He was the point guy. Uh, for trying to steal it, for trying to deny the American people, trying to deny the states uh, and all the electors. And so, you know, look, as, I, as I've said, which is for the 16 years, 16 years, Jim Jordan has been in Congress. Okay. I would like to go over right now all of his legislative accomplishments. I want to list them one by one. I'm going to start right now. I'm finished. Kevin McCarthy is blaming... Uh, Democrats for what went down. What's your response mm -hmm. to Kevin McCarthy? Well, look, he look. He's gone to the podium and he's called out the Republican members that all voted against him. So he's he's done that piece, right? So now obviously he he's got to blame the Democrats because that's a good talking point I mean, rather than the 
civil war infighting that's going on with uh, with the Republicans. But look, Kevin knows he made a deal with Republicans. Republicans were the ones who voted for that rule, um, meaning the one member vote to, to file that, uh, to make that motion. Democrats voted against that rule. So Republicans voted for that rule with Kevin McCarthy's blessing. That was the deal to become speaker. And then Republicans were the one who made the motion to vacate the chair, not Democrats. Uh, and so, look, Kevin knew that Democrats don't vote for Republican speakers and Republicans don't vote for, for Democratic speakers. I mean, how many Republican votes would Nancy Pelosi had if AOC had made the motion to get rid of Nancy Pelosi? Right? <laughs> how many Democrats, how many Republicans would be like, we got to save Nancy, got to <laughs> save her? Okay, it would have never happened. Okay, but now they're trying to install, you know, Jim Jordan here, right? So, you know, Matt Gates removes Kevin McCarthy. They try to install Jim Jordan. That would be like, I don't know, Cori Bush getting rid of, you know, Nancy Pelosi and making Ilhan Omar the speaker. I mean, that's <laughs> what's going on on the right. I mean, these are things that are that never happened in Democratic politics because we had unity. We didn't go after each other. Nancy was able to represent everybody, progressives, moderates, and everyone on all sides of the Democratic aisle. But the Republicans are, are a disaster. Donald Trump meant to say over the weekend that, Republicans are eating their own. Instead, Donald Trump said Republicans are eating their young, which I don't really want more information uh, onto that. Uh, but he, he doubled down. He goes, Republicans are eating their young. They really are. <laughs> the word delicious, I, I felt, was about to come up on screen. Oh, man. And are Democrats willing, able, ready? We heard Akima Jeffries talk about this before. Able to try to cut some deal in the best interest of our country, obviously not with Jim Jordan, but yeah. some moderates to the extent that, that exists on the side. Listen, of I'm willing at this juncture to give uh, pro tem McHenry additional powers for a 30 day period so that we can keep the government open. We can pass the Israel resolution, pass any packages that President Biden requests that you know work their way through the Senate. Uh, and that we can do, obviously, the people's work in the House for the next 30 days to give my Republican colleagues some time to figure out this mess on their own. That's what I'm willing to do. I'm not involved or aware of all sorts of other negotiations that might be going on, but Democrats are prepared to get the U.S. House of Representatives open so that it can be working for the American people. We can be sending a strong message to our allies and a message, obviously, to our adversaries that democracy works, which is something the Republicans are, are trying to put out the opposite message uh, on, on, the, on the, the House is broken. Uh, and the truth is the House is not broken. The House is only broken on their side because they, they just crave so greatly to be back uh, in the minority again. Congressman, any final words? I know you're, it's a busy day there. It's not, not like there's just been a historic vote to, again, not elect a Speaker of the House. Yeah, any no, final stay, words? Stay tuned. You know, if you, if you were watching for failure theater, you know, earlier there'll be failure. The return of failure theater is coming back this afternoon. If you enjoy watching them fail, you'll really enjoy it in the afternoon. Uh, you know, get 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 some coffee and some tea. You know, because look, he's not going to go from losing 20 votes to becoming Speaker of the House. So we're just going to have to see on uh, on on what the journey is. So tune in uh, to the uh, later afternoon episode if they were all votes again on Jim Jordan. Cheers to that, Congress Member Jared. Yeah, I, I got I got my Starbucks. I, I you know I like my coffee a little more bitter. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for all the work you do for our democracy. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report. Continue the conversation by following That's us on Instagram great. at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. Love what me some Moscowitz.
Love me some Moskowitz. Select all pasted plain text post. Got two hundred twenty subscribers on YouTube. Wow, oh you going to oh Where are you going, cutie? Where are you going, cuteness, huh? What the hell? Okay, what else we got here? Midas Touch. GOP gets crushed in court by top election lawyer and can't handle it. I'm sure you've heard the news about the government sending out rebate checks. Any single person that makes $99,000 or less is eligible for $1,200. And any married couple that makes $198,000 or less, well, they're eligible for $2,400. Well, this is great and all. Did you know that many people qualify to receive much larger checks from the government? I think if we all take that attitude, we're going to be, we're going to do the thing that we can do. It may not be everything, but it's the thing that we can do. If everyone does that, then then we can succeed. We can protect our democracy. Politics go. We like politics, politics, politics go. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Hi, Lee. Anyone paying attention to America right now can see our democracy is under attack. Those who would prefer to lead, or more specifically, rule, without any input from the people, are doing everything they can to erode our democratic norms and civil liberties and keep power in their own hands. To talk about what's happening, what we should know, and what's being done to fight back, I'm joined today by democracy super lawyer Mark Elias. Mark is an American attorney and founder of the Elias Law Group, a mission-driven firm committed to helping Democrats win, citizens vote, and progressives make change, and Democracy Docket the leading progressive source for information, analysis, and opinion about voting rights, elections, and democracy. Previously the general counsel for John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign and Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, Mark was also the Democratic Party election lawyer in 2020 and 2021, representing the Biden campaign and the DNC in the state-by-state -state response to the Stop the Steal lawsuits filed by Trump and his people contesting the presidential results. As you may remember, Mark and his team ended up winning all but one minor case, which was later overturned in his favor. I'm having Mark on today because, as he says, you can't fight voter suppression unless you know what's happening. So I want you to know what's been happening, what's being done, and what we can do to support democracy moving forward. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Democracy's White Knight, creator of Democracy Docket, and founder of the Elias Law Group, Mark Elias. Welcome back, Mark. 
Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for coming. I always love your perspective on what now feels like the never-ending attacks on our democracy, because it's really you who's on the front line fighting back in court. You always kind of point out that one of the biggest ways to stop these extreme moves against our free and fair elections is to raise the public's awareness of what's going on. And the Republicans and their allies have been using voter suppression and litigation as a weapon against democracy for a long time. But now, as depressing as that reality is, I feel like you've had some real success fighting back. Yeah. You know, look, the, the, the court system in this country is not ideal. You know, we can look at the composition of the Supreme Court and all lament, you know, what's going on there. But people need to keep in mind that, that you know, the Supreme Court hears about 50 to 60 cases a year. And there are tens of thousands of cases that are decided uh, every year around the country, hundreds of thousands of cases in the federal courts alone that are decided every year. And so we have had success. The courts have more or less, they don't always get it right, but they have been more or less uh, committed and a backstop against the worst acts of Republican uh, uh, suppression and election subversion. And it's important to understand that it's really both of those things. It's, it's efforts to make it harder to vote, but also ways to undermine the results if they don't like it. As I, as I say, you know, Republicans want to make it harder to vote easier to cheat. And the courts are the backstop when Republicans do that. Right. You told an amazing story recently online about prisoners in the Holocaust who were in charge of the potatoes. And I feel like that's such a fitting story for these times. Would you mind sharing it with us before we go forward? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I've been asked for, uh, on occasion, you know, why I do this work. How did I, how did I come to this work? And also, what is my philosophy? And I, I tell folks that, you know, one of the formative experiences of my life was uh, growing up in New York. I was studying for my bar mitzvah, and I'm 54, so, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, 1982, and, you know, at that point, the Holocaust was history, but it wasn't, but there were a lot of people who had been in World War II, who at that point were not like the 87-year-old, you know, yeah. these were people who, who, you know, were in the prime of their lives, and, and the Holocaust was, 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 you know, first-hand experience for them. And I heard from growing up a lot of Holocaust survivors, but the person who really stuck out to me the most was not a Holocaust survivor. He was an American citizen, a Jewish American, uh, who had been in the US uh, military. And he was captured by the Nazis. So American GI captured by the Nazis. And he is sent to Stalin. He was sent to a prisoner war camp. And the Jewish prisoners of war uh, in this camp were part of a crew who had agricultural duties. So it was a work camp. It wasn't just like a hangout camp. There was such a thing. There was such a thing for prisoner of war camps. But this was a work camp. So they had jobs to do, and they were part of an agricultural crew of some sort. And I remember him vividly saying that uh, at some point they got the idea that they would take pieces of the barbed wire fence around them, and they would, when they were picking potatoes and sorting the potatoes, they would press holes into the potatoes using pieces of barbed wire. And their hope was that it would cause the potatoes to rot. Mm -hmm. And by rotting the potatoes, it would starve the Nazi army. So I want you and everyone listening to just think about this for a second. You're, you're, you know, you're 18, 19, 20 years old. You're from New York. You're Jewish. 
you are now held in a prison war camp, literally by the Nazis. And you are surrounded in a work camp by armed guards and barbed wire. And you set, you take it upon yourself to grab shreds of barbed wire and press them against your fingers. You don't have gloves. You don't have some protection. You are literally pressing barbed wire against your flesh so that you can put holes in the potatoes in the what? hopes that that is going to starve the Nazi war. Huh. I recounted this story and I've told it because I don't have any illusion that this podcast by itself is going to stop Donald Trump and the destruction of our democracy. I don't have any illusions that any case we file is going to be the thing that stops the voter suppression or the anti-subversion efforts or, you know, saves democracy. But every day, you in speaking out the way you do, me in hopefully the litigation I do, we are poking holes in the potato. You know, we're poking holes in the potato. And maybe it's futile. Maybe, maybe in the end, the Nazi war effort was not going to starve based alone on any one potato being rotten. But I think if we all take that attitude that we are going to poke holes in the potatoes, we are going to be, we're going to do the thing that we can do. It may not be everything, but it's the thing that we can do. If everyone does that, then then we can succeed. We can protect our norms. Yeah, and that's why it takes all of us. That many more people will starve that war yeah. effort. Yeah. Right? That, that's the message. The message is that, that I think people want to find, you know, the great people in history. They want to find the, the big battle. They want to find the defining event. And what they don't realize is it is the act, actions and activities of millions of people doing small things to stand up for what's right, to protect your neighbor's right to vote, to make sure that uh, that a woman seeking reproductive health care is able to achieve it. That each of these things on a one by one, treating kindly an immigrant, you know, each of these things one by one will make a difference. And it's not, we're not going to be saved by one lawsuit, by one case in the Supreme Court, by one big speech. It's what you do every single day, which is why I'm thrilled to be back with you. Thank you. I always say it's like water on a stone. You know, the drip, drip, drip. Eventually, you get a hole. And you have to yeah. keep making the effort every day. Well, you're making the effort. I know your firm is litigating 47 voting and election cases right now in 19 states, and you're expecting to take on more. So you're clearly making a big hole in that stone, I honestly have to say. But since we don't have the time to really dig into every single one of those cases, I thought I would just pick a couple states that have been in the news lately and get your thoughts on them. Does that work for you? This is what, yeah, this is what I love about your your podcast. <laughs> this is like literally, I've been, looking, I've been looking forward to this part. I'm like, let's do this. Okay, so... Alabama, who refused for months to comply with the Supreme Court's order to redraw their congressional maps and comply with the Voting Rights Act. I know your firm was handling that case, and after a lot of back and forth, it looks like Alabama is finally going to have to comply. Do you want to update us on where we're at with that? Yeah, so Alabama passed an illegal map in 2021 that uh, failed to create a second majority black district. My firm uh, brought a lawsuit along with uh, some other organizations. Uh, we won before a trial court, three judges, two appointed by uh, former President Trump. Uh, so this was not a progressive panel by any stretch of imagination. We won. The state of Alabama, rather than complying with the law, went to the U.S. Supreme Court thinking that they could win there. They didn't. The Supreme Court agreed. 
And then what happened next, I think, is a really instructive thing for your audience, which is that at this point, the state of Alabama was ordered by a trial court to draw two black opportunity districts, two congressional districts where black uh, voters could elect their candidates' choice. The state of Alabama asked for additional time to be able to do so, and then they didn't. Then they did. Then they drew a map that they acknowledged did not meet the requirements of what the court had ordered or what the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled. And so at this point, you had the state of Alabama in open in defiance, proudly defiance of, uh, of a court order. Uh, the good news is that uh, the court then I had its own special master, basically an expert, draw a map. And so Here. there will now be two black opportunity districts for 2024. So, so, so all well, all, all well that ends well, except I want to just like point this out to you and to your audience that the culture, because culture matters so much, you know, culture matters, you know, what you see on TV matters, movies, theater, music, sports, like culture matters. And so think about the culture of what the Republicans in Alabama were doing. They would rather have a court draw map and stand in defiance of it than do their job. They'd rather have the theater, like George Wallace, right? George Wallace wanted the theater of being moved out of the way of the schoolhouse doors because he didn't want to be seen as complying with a court order to desegregate the university. And think about what that says about the culture of today's Republican Party, that that in 2023 is what they prefer. It's almost as if they want to show their voters that they're willing to fight. It's performative. These Republican-controlled legislatures across the country are trying this tactic on because ignoring the law, you know, defying the law, it's just good politics for them right now. And it's the same impulse that led Donald Trump to falsely claim he won the 2020 election, even though every court told him he didn't and he knew he didn't. And I think you're, what you're saying here is that idea is kind of infecting the whole party. Right? Like, it's out there everywhere. I mean, we can see this defiance happening in Indiana, in Georgia. You point out in Democracy Docket that the Republican lawmakers in Ohio ignored five court orders over their redistricting, right? Like, Florida is currently defending its congressional map, even though it totally violates their state constitution. And part of that is on the grounds that they think the constitution itself is illegal, right? Like, it's just defiance as performative. Like, these people are all against us and they're liberal and i think it's pretty rich for alabama don't have to be rich be my girl no particular sign i'm all compatible with just want your extra time and himself is that yeah. holding the justices of the Supreme Court uh, to any sort of accountability uh, uh, is just another way for Democrats uh, to deal and with dance. politics. And yet it's actually the conservative movement that's tarnishing the court's rulings with overturning precedent on cases like Roe v. Wade and undermining and gutting the Voting Rights Act and defying subpoenas and refusing to abide by ethic rules. And now it's the conservatives openly defying court rulings that they don't agree with. So I think we just need to be really serious about what it's part of a movement. Like you said, it's part of their culture now to say, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. Defying the court itself is actually the point at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm curious on your opinion on this. this is about law. Straight a little bit, but I mean, take your point about the, the ethics rules of the Supreme Court. Right. You know. 
like in a parallel world, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, like in a in a sensible world, in a better you world. would have you would have you you would have Republicans say, you know what, maybe these rules weren't clear enough, or they weren't in place, which you know we could talk about. But yeah, we ought to have rules. We ought to have clear rules. There ought to be clear well, ethics rules going forward. Hmm. And it's, it's a shame world. that maybe there weren't, whatever. But like, yes, it's but it's, it, it's it's again, it's almost performance, like. Why would you Act your, why age, you your ground the on no there should be no ethics rules? <laughs> like why why is that the place? But the Republican Party today I think rewards that. I think you're not wrong. I think they do reward that. It's it's why people like Donald Trump. It's he's he's willing to fight for me, is what people keep saying. And fighting being the man and the man being the government, even though he was the government. These people are the government. So right. I find it very interesting. You know, the general sense I got with Alabama was they were hoping that if they just ignored the ruling and got it back to the Supreme Court, they might get a different result. Like John Roberts, who's been trying to get the Voting Rights Act since he was in his 20s, and Brett Kavanaugh clearly had to hold his nose to make the first ruling. They thought, you know what, like maybe if we take it back, they're going to be like, oh, geez, I guess they tried. Let Alabama have the one district. But I think... You don't think that's what happened, right? You think I don't. Th I don't think that's what happened. What you just said is the conventional wisdom. The conventional yeah. wisdom is that the that the that what Alabama was doing is it thought it could if it went back to the Supreme Court, a second bite of the apple, they would go on the additional vote. I actually don't think that's what happened. I think Alabama wanted to once it knew it was going to lose, it wanted to lose and it wanted to be seen as cooperating by following. Coletta. Yeah. George Wallace style. Time to get my stuff. Yeah. Standing in front of the schoolhouse, right? So now basically Alabama's done everything they could. They just couldn't get it done. And they're going to need to comply. So that's good. I will have two majority districts. That's good. Check. Check. Okay, so let's talk Florida. Um, I mentioned Florida before, but I know you just want a case there. What should we know about that? Because I think a lot of people are in Florida. It's so much the deep red we're told it is, but blue suppressed. Oh my God! So you're not going to believe this. So, so Florida, Florida passed by popular ballot initiative. 60% of Floridians passed what are called the fair districts. They passed these in 2010 before the last round of redistricting. Among the things that it said in those fair district amendments was that you cannot diminish minority voting Okay, and so. I sued them in 2011 because they violated it and we won. We won for the Florida Supreme Court. So fast forward now to 2021. And the Florida legislature, which is dominated by Republicans, is not a bunch of lefties. This is like dominated by Republicans. They pass a map and they say, well, we need to keep the fifth congressional district in Florida as a uh, district in which uh, black voters have a choice. Because if we don't do that, that will diminish the ability of black voters to elect their candidates. Like, it's just math. In many respects, it's like Alabama. Like, you know, you have to create two so they create one. Well, that one is not two. Right? Same thing happened in Florida. The Republican legislature is like, well, if we, do, if we take away this district, that will be a diminished. So they pass a map to continue to have a black opportunity district in CD5. What does Ron DeSantis do? He vetoes the Republican map. He vetoes their map because it's not extreme enough. And so he forces the legislature to adopt a map that that obliterates Al Lawson District, this uh, formerly historically black district that spans between uh, Jacksonville and Tallahassee, and, and forces them to, to pass an illegal map. So we sue, and a judge... Uh, tried
That's okay, I got some. Try it. I'm telling you, you'll be missing out. You can try this shit. Here, it's cup right here. Put that shit up. Fix it. Shit. Hit the button. Onions. Oh, sorry. Okay. There, you don't like onions? Get out of here. You don't like onions? You like onions? You're making me cry, man. Take that down. Mint or something? But it's hard to because I have gum. Vanilla. Vanilla. Oh, the vanilla um, chai. Right. I don't know what what teas did you buy when we went there. When we went there, what, how many different teas did you buy? Green tea, black tea. Oh, I drank black tea. Really? Yeah, I think I missed it. Because oh, yeah. I, I thought some of the tea was his. I don't know. Yeah. Was it? Green tea, black tea, what else? That vanilla chai. Bye. Don't forget to print me off that stuff, man. Mm -hmm. I asked you to do it. Can you do it tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, thank you. So I can... So I can uh, haul off some fucking Which one? I sent you text messages. Exactly text what messages? I need. Yeah. This morning. Uh, check your text messages. Yeah. Right. Told you exactly what I need. Try to do it tonight so I can send off motions tomorrow. Thank right. you. Bye. And a judge, a trial judge, appointed by Rick Scott, former governor of, of Florida, conservative governor, conservative senator, he agrees. He says, yep, like you you, you did away with a uh, black opportunity district, that is diminishment. And now the state of Florida oh, is appealing, and among their oh, arguments for appeal, on appeal is that the Constitution is on the stuff in the lighter. Like, That's what kind of state is Fuck you. Give it to me, fucker. The fuck you didn't give me no weed yet. Where's my weed? You said you didn't want it. Yeah, I did. No, I didn't say something like that. <laughs> what the fuck? No, just, just break it off now, chunky. Um, I'll get to, I'll get you. Uh, no, hell no, don't leave here. Just bring it right here. In my hand, man, come on. Don't be cheesy. Okay, talk to me, I'll get it out for you. Like, yeah, what kind of state, like, states are in the business of defending, look at all the crazy laws, all of the horrible, terrible, restrictive um, uh, abortion laws that, that Republican AGs are defending all over the country. They won't even defend their own state constitution. So that is now going up uh, to the to the Court of Appeals and then probably ultimately to state Supreme Court. I am hopeful that, uh, that the state courts uphold their own state constitution and that would be an additional district itself.
And just so people understand, the ruling that they have on the books right now is that even though DeSantis got away with this for the midterms, which might be why they were the only site that had the much-hyped red wave that we didn't see, uh, those maps are not allowed to be used in future congressional elections. But that is, of course, going up to the Florida Supreme Court, which, of course, Ron DeSantis himself chose most of those justices. So that'll be an interesting case for you guys. Uh, North Carolina. It feels like a bit of a bummer to me. I'm not going to lie. I know you had a win there recently, but with the legislative branch and the judicial branch working together to make sure Republicans in that state never lose power again, it just feels so sickeningly undemocratic to me. Can you tell me where we stand with North Carolina? Yeah, so we won a huge victory in North Carolina in redistricting. As yeah. you know, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. We fought back successfully against this right-wing legal theory that would have destroyed the judicial review of state courts of the independent state legislature theory. So we had a win. Uh, we had fair maps in North Carolina for 2022. Uh, but as you point out now, the, the state court, state Supreme Court has flipped and become uh, controlled by Republican justices. And at the same time, there was a flip of a single legislator uh, yeah, people might remember, this is the state with the Democrat who switched sides to the Republicans to give them a veto-proof majority. And now that veto-proof majority is now Republican and working in tandem with this now 5-2 conservative Supreme Court. And they're out there passing just the most outrageous laws. And then the court is just rubber stamping them. And the state still has a Democratic governor, a Democratic AG, a Democratic Secretary of State. But this legislator-judicial combo is basically stripping them of their power piecemeal so that they can't push back. Yeah, so so on the redistricting, we're waiting for the legislature to enact its new map. I've told that, I've, I've said publicly, and I know they've heard me, I've been told in two channels that they've heard me live and clear, that if they pass an illegal map, I will sue. Um, yeah, if they, if which they you violate, If they violate federal law, if they violate federal law, we will be in federal court and we will sue. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, as you point out, across a range of issues, including our uh, the, uh, new voter suppression law they passed, a law that strips power from their election board, uh, a whole series of other laws that I worry are coming that will affect individual rights and individual freedom. Act on age, not suicide. Uh, by that individual legislator. Governor Cooper can no longer, you know, veto and have that veto sustained uh, if all the Republicans vote the other way. So. We're going to need to rely more uh, in court in North Carolina, and we're going to need to rely more on people voting because that district that flipped, you know, elections have consequences, people say all the time. But, you know, there is no excuse for a, for someone to be elected in a Democratic, overwhelmingly Democratic district outside of Charlotte and become a Republican. So hopefully, well, if, if, if people show up at the polls, maybe we can uh, we can undo some of that harm. Yeah, and it is depressing to people, uh, but I think people should also see it as a huge warning light to what Republicans can do in other states if they get legislative majorities and the courts. Uh, it's what they were trying to do in Wisconsin and what we were able to stop with the election of Justice Protestewitz in the spring. But it just sort of shows us how fragile a hold people really have in our democracy and how much we have to be paying attention and how much we have to be voting. Yeah, and let me say, and let me say on the Wisconsin thing real quick. Yeah. You know, the work that you and your audience and others in this movement have done, it was not just electing a good progressive state Supreme Court justice, but just recently, you know, after weeks and weeks of threatening about impeachment, 
the spotlight of America shined on that legislature. Just a couple, you know, recently the Republican Speaker of the House seemed to back away from the threats of impeachment, and that's that's entirely due to public pressure. Right? Let's be honest. It's not like it's not like all of a sudden the Republicans woke up and said, "Oh my God, this would be wrong." That is public spotlight and pressure. So thank you. Yes, and thank you to everyone in the audience and everyone who actually called and sent money and really helped the wisdoms because this is the thing. This is what I want people to always remember. We can make change. It can get better, but it just takes work. I heard somebody say recently, hope is not passive. Hope is active. It is an axe breaking down doors. You have to put in the work, but then you can actually see the change. Um, and I just, the, the Wisconsin thing is really very wonderful, actually, because it, like you said, they didn't back down from the goodness of their hearts. They backed down because they were like, whoa, everyone's looking at us. So last state we're going to do, New York. I feel like New York is kind of a hopeful example because the Democrats basically lost the House on New York alone. And it seems like we're going to have different maps for the next election. Yeah, I hope so. So uh, people, what people need to understand about New York redistricting is that the map that was used in 2022 was drawn by a court special master in um, a very rural red part of the, the judge uh, who heard that the Republicans brought a lawsuit against the map that had been enacted, a judge in Steuben County, New York. I know you, for some period of time, lived in New York. I, bet I you did, you but in the it. city, I lived in Manhattan. I bet you, you don't even know where Steuben County is. <laughs> but Steuben County is, is about nine hours by bus from New York City. Uh, it's a very rural red area, and the map that was drawn, frankly, just does not represent the, the, the demographics or the political composition of the state. The diversity of New York City was not really taken into account in rural New York. Uh, uh, so my firm brought a lawsuit to, to simply ask that the bipartisan independent redistricting commission, it's literally called the independent redistricting commission, and it is bipartisan, that they are told to draw a new fair map for 2024. That, okay, fine. The court thought that the map for 2022 wasn't appropriate. That's is what it is, I didn't agree, but fine, but that the Bipartisan Independent Redistricting Commission should be allowed, should be ordered, not allowed, should be ordered to draw a new map for 2024. I think everyone acknowledges, from left to right, the center, the good government groups, the partisan Republicans, the partisan Democrats, I think everyone recognizes that if that happened, if you had a bipartisan independent map, Democrats would probably gain four to six seats. So that gives you some sense of how out of skew this map is. Because four to, gaining four to six seats would be like the place the bipartisan independent redistricting commission would come down. So, of course, the Republicans are fighting against this. They don't want to allow the independent redistricting commission to draw a new map. Uh, we won in uh, the intermediate court, and now the court case will be heard uh, next month in the <laughs> high court in New York. So I'm optimistic that there'll be a new map in time for 2024. That's great, and that would be wonderful. It would also help us bring back the house, or at least counter what's going to happen in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, and look. You look at those. You look at what those House Republicans right now. You know, those are all MAGA Republicans. I, you know, there there are no moderates in the in the, in the Republican conference. But those those uh, Republicans are looking at the Kevin McCarthy ouster on one side and George Santos on the other side. They need gerrymandering to keep this. Let's be clear. They need yeah. they need it, and so a fair map, you know, putting their votes with Kevin McCarthy and the damage that they've done to this country before the voters, 
uh, they know what that would be. Yes, they do. So we're seeing the gerrymandering and the voter suppression continue because that's what they need to do it. What, what, what other tactics are you seeing that have changed since the 2022 midterms? Like what new laws should we be looking out for? Are there new types of lawsuits on deck to keep people from voting? I know you recently wrote a piece about the growing threat of Republican election vigilanteism. So what did you mean by that? If you're a bra wearer, you know there's nothing worse than an uncomfortable bra, oh, which is why I'm so pleased to be partner with the But I think I'm going to politics girl. Honey love, duck, food scraps, and plant food. It's not hard to, if you can, you really what high.